Well, so why do you think it's important to learn about voting rights history today? Um, I think that many of the challenges that people were facing in the past are still occurring today. They might look slightly different, but um, unfortunately, the fight is not over. Well, hello, everyone. My name is Eliza Canty-Jones, and I am the editor of the Oregon Historical Quarterly and director of community engagement at the Oregon Historical Society. We're going to talk about the suffrage movement, which petitioned for women to have the right to vote, about why that history is relevant today, and about OHS's exhibit on that topic. Nevertheless, they persisted, women's voting rights and the 19th Amendment. Just like in protest movements today, suffragists had disagreements about tactics, and Black women and other women of color were leaders in the movement. We recorded this interview on August 20th, 2020, the day after Kamala Harris accepted Joe Biden's nomination to be his vice president. Today, I am honored to speak with my colleague, Lori Erickson, who curated the exhibit. And together with the Oregon Federal Bar Association, uh, we're hosting a podcast series in commemoration of the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage. Lori has been with the Oregon Historical Society for about six years. She is the curator of exhibits and special projects at OHS, and she's worked in museums for over 20 years. As a veteran of museums, I had to ask her, is this one special? This one is special. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us some about that. Give us a sense of the scope of the exhibit and why working on it was special for you in this long career. So this exhibit covers pretty much the entire history of the women's suffrage movement in America and also in Oregon. Um, I think why it's especially meaningful for me is just learning about some of the activists who fought for such a long, long period of time and never gave up. <laughs> you know, some women fought most of their adult lives to achieve the vote. And I think that is just one of the most inspiring things that I've encountered in my career. We had a presentation on civil rights history by um, Professor Jean Theo Harris yesterday. And she was talking about some of the things that we get wrong about civil rights history and what she refers to as a fable of civil rights history. That is the idea, for example, that Rosa Parks one day was just tired and decided not to move on the bus. And that just sparked a movement that people then understood the injustice and, and got behind the civil rights movement. And she talked about how instead what really that history was, was just decades and decades of work, including by Rosa Parks, who had been an activist for much longer and continued to be an activist for the rest of her life until she died in the early 21st century. And I'm realizing now that when I first learned about suffrage history, um, I think I was struck exactly by the same thing that you were. For some reason, I'd had it in my mind that it was sort of like an afterthought, like suddenly the United States woke up and went, oops, we forgot to add women. Guess we better get the 19th Amendment in there. And I, I didn't learn about those decades and generations of women who worked for that right. And obviously with many uh, male allies. And I think that that's one of the things that I love about the exhibit is that you get into so much of the, the depth of that fight, the geographic breadth of that fight, the fact that they did not always agree just like movements today, there was a lot of disagreement about strategies and tactics and all those kinds of things. And I think it's really, um, I, think, I, I think it's heartening to understand 
that major change takes that persistence and that perseverance, which of course is uh, what you titled the exhibit. Do you want to tell us about the title some? Yes, so um, that title was suggested by one of our advisors. We had an amazing group of advisors and we decided we really wanted to highlight the, the persistence of this movement and the persistence of the women and men that were fighting for so long um, to achieve this. So we also wanted to tie it into more recent times and because of the way that the phrase, nevertheless, she persisted has sort of taken off uh, culturally as um, a feminist rallying cry, <laughs> um, we decided that we would switch that around and change it to nevertheless, they persisted. Love that. So you, you talk some about just being impressed with how long women took, um, you know, fighting for this right. What were some of the things that surprised you as you got into the research and learning about it? Were there other things? Yeah, I think that one thing that really surprised me was how early the movement began in Oregon and how committed some of those women were from the very early days. I mean, basically just a decade after statehood, women were already working for the vote and taking some like major actions uh, to forward the cause. In Portland, four women attempted to vote in the election presenting their ballots to the polling place, which were not accepted. And one of those women was an African-American woman named Mary Beatty. And this was a time period when the Black exclusion laws were fully in force and the courage it took to do that for all of them, but especially for Mary Beatty, it's just is very striking. Yeah, I'm amazed by that as well. And um, just the prominent public activism that so many Black folks were taking in Oregon in the 1870s is impressive to me. I think she gave a talk at the Oregon State Equal Suffrage Association, like in 1873, talking specifically about the importance of the ballot for Black women. And just like you, I'm super impressed by that. Yeah. What are some of the artifacts that are in the exhibit that you especially love or find poignant? Yeah, there is an original sash that belongs to an Oregon attorney that so generously loaned it to us. It was worn by her grandmother when she was working for suffrage, marching for suffrage in New York. And it's an amazing piece, you know, that it's amazing that something like that has survived all these years. So interesting to think about the way the Votes for Women sashes, that was part of the brand of the suffrage movement. So to have that actual sash from that time period there is really incredible. Yeah, and I mean, to really highlight the idea that just how this was like the early 20th century, the first two decades of the 20th century, the protests and marches were really taking off at that time. There were a lot of different techniques that people were using throughout the years to achieve suffrage. And so, especially in like the teens, there were a lot of protests and marches going on. Yeah, there were a lot of women in Washington, D.C. who were protesting in front of the White House and in other places and being arrested and in some cases handled quite violently by the police, including uh, being force-fed while in jail. And I know that there were some Oregon women who, even though they had gained the franchise in 1912, continued on that advocacy to try and push for the national amendment and actually were involved in that activism in D.C. 
Yeah, absolutely. And we have images of some of the women, the Oregon women that were involved and in, um, showing them protesting and picketing. And it's, those are pretty amazing pieces of history that tie everything back to our state. I think some of the things that I, um, there's so much in the exhibit I love, but some of the things that I love are the reproductions of the voter registration cards. And mm -hmm. I love the way that you have them in the exhibit because there's voter registration cards of women who were activists, women suffrage activists. And I know one, um, Patty Redmond, who was a black woman who was a leader in the 1912 campaign and then did go and register in 1913 to vote. And then also you have voter registration cards from women who were not uh, supportive of suffrage, who were actually anti-suffragists. And I know I had the opportunity through this work to learn about Catherine McCammett, who was adamantly opposed to suffrage because she thought if women had the right, then it would be their responsibility to use the right. And she didn't <laughs> want women to have to have that responsibility. And right. I think her registration card is one that you have in the exhibit with a case on the antis. Is that right? It is. Yeah. Yeah. We have a couple um, that are in there. And uh, that was really interesting to me to know that you know, it just seems hard to understand why women would not support their own enfranchisement. Um, but yeah, I think learning why and then seeing that once women had that right, that they then intended to exercise it is interesting because I think um, Mrs. McCammon, I believe she was saying that uh, she felt like she didn't want to have to use the right to vote, but then when she had it, she felt compelled to use it, that you know she needed to exercise that right. So um, that's why she registered to vote, and I'm assuming she voted as well. So. Yeah, I'm assuming so as well. And you have that amazing photograph from 1916 of uh, Mrs. Amanda Garvin, who was a woman who was formerly enslaved, and mm -hmm. she's photographed in, in the Oregonian of casting her first ballot in 1916. Mm -hmm. um, and that's an amazing story, too, because that caption talks about how she was not literate, but had other people read to her so that she was kept well informed about all of the issues of the time. The caption spoke about how she said that she was particularly concerned with issues that were um, important for Black women in particular. And so she was really focused. And I think this is um, you know, over 100 years later, you know, we're talking today after last night, Kamala Harris accepted the nomination for vice president of the United States for a major party. And she talked, I think, a lot about the, the particular interests of Black women in the political sphere and women of color. And so really looking at these antecedents, Mary Beatty talking about that in 1872, Amanda Garvin talking about that in 1916 here in Oregon. Um, it's really fascinating to think about the intersectionality of the ways that women engage in their right to vote. And then I'll just one more, I think, um, that wonderful quote from Dr. Esther Clayson Pole Lovejoy, who was a white woman who was a leader in the 1906 and 1912 campaigns. And after the win in 1912, um, this quote is up in our Experience Oregon exhibit. And she said, oh, women will vote just how they have campaigned. There was neither head nor tail to the campaign. To me, that sounds like you can't just put us all in a box. We have right. a lot of varied interests. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, so why do you think it's important to learn about voting rights history today? Um, I think that many of the challenges that people were facing in the past are still occurring today. They might look slightly different, but um, I think we still 
have not achieved enfranchisement for all citizens. Um, I think there are a lot of things that are still happening, such as gerrymandering, you know, redrawing district lines to lessen the power of certain populations in voting, taking away the right to vote from convicted felons. I think the mail-in ballots and the potential that there are things being done to undermine vote-in mailing, um, possibly by the postal office and you know other politicians. I think these things are still occurring all the time. And unfortunately, the fight is not over. <laughs> and uh, we, we need to know about everything that has happened in the past and everything that has brought us here so that we can continue to work and um, move forward towards true equality in voting rights for all. I completely agree. And just as you were talking, I was thinking about some of the things I've learned through working on these projects with you about the, the 15th Amendment and the 19th Amendment and the way they, um, the way they outlaw explicit restrictions on voting based on race and based on sex. And then the ways that um, those who would like to deny voting rights, you know, some of these tactics that you were just talking about, ways that they have gotten around that and so attacked people's voting rights without explicitly saying it's about race or explicitly saying it's about sex. Um, Oregonians in 1924 passed a literacy test. And we have, I know, in our museum collection, a collection of the cards that could be used to ensure that a person could read English. So it's targeting a lot of different groups. And I know I've learned some about the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and the way people talk about that is really fulfilling the promise of the 15th and 19th amendments by outlawing many of those restrictions. And then of course, uh, just as you say, we have to be vigilant because then in 2013 in that Shelby v. Holder decision, the Supreme Court really took the teeth out of the Voting Rights Act. Now Congress can do something about that uh, so I guess that brings us back to um, today and yeah. why it's relevant to ensure that we use the vote to put the kind of people in office who will continue to expand and protect the right to vote um, mm -hmm. so that we do have, I mean, I, I'm for universal suffrage for sure. Um, and I want to make sure that folks have access to that. So this has been an episode of Voting Now turning rights into reality, a new podcast series from the Oregon chapter of the Federal Bar Association in collaboration with the Oregon Historical Society. We focus on current and historical barriers to voting. Want to find out more? Hit subscribe to check out our episodes and visit our website, voting-now.com. Celia Howes is the lead host and executive producer. Frayne Masters is our creative director. Miranda Schaefer is our producer. And Gravier Alganeo is our senior editor. Special thanks to Fiona McCann. I'm Eliza Cantu-Jones, and my guest was Lori Erickson. You can find out more about our exhibit and our hours of operation in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>